Thank you for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about our church. And visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. Teaching today is our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. All right, good morning, church. So great to be with you again today. And if you've got a Bible, take it out and open to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14, a message I've called the new Passover meal. And I can't wait to share this study with you this week. And as you're turning there in your Bibles, I want to remind you of a couple of things. Uh, First of all, on Tuesday nights, we're journeying through the book of Exodus right now. I'm actually going to, in our study today, make reference to some of the things we've been covering on Tuesday nights. So whether you want to go back and listen to the book of Genesis, or if you want to join us in our current study in Exodus, I'd love for you to be part of that. You can grab it, of course, live on Tuesday, but we also upload it so that it's available for you wherever you get podcasts or watch videos. You can follow us and continue on in the word that way. So I hope and pray that you can join me in studying the scripture uh, in that way. And then, of course, just want to give one final plea to those of you who are on the fence considering whether or not you want to be in a life group this coming quarter. Uh, We had a great night of worship this last week, and Pastor Jeff directed us for a season during during that night of worship to pray for the coming life group quarter. And my wife and I and our young daughter got together, and we were praying in our little circle. And I just found myself praying that if God wants to add to our numbers in the life group ministry, that he would add those who are willing to commit to another uh, section of believers in the church, commit to other believers in the family of Christ. Uh, We don't want to have people join just to join, but to join so that they can partake of Christian life and fellowship together. So if you feel that that describes you, I'd encourage you to get plugged in today because we've had signups for the last couple of weeks and that window is now closing. Uh, But let's go into the word today, Mark chapter 14, verse 12 to 25 is our text uh, today. And let's pray and ask the Lord to bless us in the word. God, we pray and ask that you would speak to us uh, today, that you minister to us today from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me start this way. In Exodus, God set Israel free from their Egyptian captivity with an event called the Passover. Again, this is part of what we've been looking at on Tuesday nights as we've been going through the book of Exodus. And plague after plague had rained down upon Egypt, and Pharaoh had, uh, would not surrender. He would not give in to God. With a hardened heart, he refused to acknowledge a deity greater than himself. Really, in one sense, what Pharaoh was was a picture of humankind uh, because he was the pinnacle of humanity. And like many people who came after him in defiance, he would not and he could not submit to God. So after nine plagues of judgment, three sets of three, God promised one final plague. It would finally lead to Israel's freedom from Egypt. And in it, an angel of death would enter Egypt and mercifully pass over every house that had the blood of a sacrificial lamb on its door. So families got together that night 
and sacrificed the lamb, placed the blood on the door, and prepared a meal of lamb's meat and unleavened bread to eat. And as promised, God came into Egypt that night. The judgment, of course, was severe. You can imagine the chaos, the brokenness, the weeping, the wailing. And Pharaoh himself had been struck. His own son had died. And alarmed and grieving, Pharaoh finally bent to God's will and commanded the people of Israel to depart. Israel was free. Now, because this was a significant event, one where God had purchased a people for himself, a new tradition was established. Each year, from that point forward, Israel celebrated a Passover meal to commemorate the original Passover event. And in our passage today, Jesus is going to transition the ancient meal into a new meal that centers around him. The deliverance that Jesus won for his people on the cross is superior to the original Passover event. In fact, the original Passover is a mere foreshadowing of Jesus's ultimate sacrifice. So much so that in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7, Paul says that Jesus Christ is our Passover lamb. Often called the Lord's table or the Lord's supper or communion or the Eucharist by Jesus' church, it's a practice that is meant to commemorate the original events of the cross of Christ. It's an important meal that Jesus gave to his church, and we're going to think about it today. So as we look in this passage, we're going to spend some time rejoicing over this meal and all that it signifies for us today. But first, there's a little bit of backdrop to the meal as Jesus instituted it. So let's start reading our text in verse 12. It says, And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat this Passover And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready there prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them and they prepared the Passover. We'll stop right there. Remember last week uh, at the beginning of our text, the beginning of Mark chapter 14, the religious leaders decided that Jesus needed to die, but they didn't want Jesus to be killed. They didn't want to kill him during the Passover. Uh, Some historians think that Jerusalem swelled to a population of near three million people at that time whenever the Passover occurred. And That Passover event, as Mark notes in verse 12, was connected to the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So this long seven-day period of Passover, Feast of Unleavened Bread, that uh, Jerusalem swelled and the people of God, the people of Israel, celebrated the past things that God had done for them. And the reason the religious leaders didn't want Jesus to die during the Passover is because they feared an uproar from the people. Mark 14, verse 2. Uh, The reality was is that Rome was always watching Israel and especially always watching Jerusalem. So if Jesus was killed when this huge crowd was there, the religious leaders feared an uproar and then that would 
caused them to experience Rome's wrath. But since Jesus is the ultimate Passover lamb, who takes away the sin of the world, even though the religious leaders didn't want him to die during the Passover, he needed to die during the Passover. Before his arrest, Jesus wanted to eat, though, the Passover meal with his disciples one last time. Before he died, he wanted to partake of one final Passover meal with his disciples. In fact, when Luke retells this story, he records Jesus saying to his disciples with great anticipation, I've, I've longed to eat this final meal with you. Now, the meal took a little time to, to prepare, and it had to be eaten, according to Deuteronomy 16, inside the holy city's walls, so inside Jerusalem. And since the lambs were sacrificed on Thursday afternoon, what the disciples are wondering is, where do you want us to go prepare a Thursday night Passover meal inside Jerusalem? Now, apparently, Jesus had secretly prearranged a venue to eat this meal. He sent two disciples, the other gospels tell us it was Peter and John, into Jerusalem. And what they were to look for in Jerusalem when they walked into the gate was a man with a jar of water on his head. And they weren't even supposed to talk to this man, but then to follow this man. And whatever home he went into, they were to talk to the master of that home and ask him about the room that had been reserved for Jesus. This master would show them a large, furnished, rooftop patio room where they could prepare the meal for Jesus and the disciples. Now, this was Jesus' way of keeping the location secret. But why all this secrecy from Jesus? Well, by this point, Judas as we saw last week, has already been paid to betray Jesus to the religious leaders. By keeping the location a secret, Jesus delayed Judas's betrayal until after this final meal. Jesus and the disciples often stayed in the Garden of Gethsemane during the various feasts, so Judas knew about that location and could easily lead the religious leaders Uh, once Jesus was there, to the Garden of Gethsemane. But he had no knowledge, no idea about this upper room. So he could not betray Jesus to them from there. And so the two disciples go into Jerusalem and found it just as Jesus had told them, and they prepared the Passover. Now, I know this is just simple backdrop stuff, you know, to this incredible meal that Jesus is going to institute but I don't want you to miss the complete control of Jesus. He's gonna die tomorrow as we're reading this passage. Yet there's not even one hint of desperation, one hint of fear. He's driving straight toward the cross. He knows that he needs to institute this new meal before he dies. He's in complete control. Look at verse 17. It says, and when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and say to him one after another, is it I? He said to them, it is one of the 12, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the son of man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Now, this is actually more background material 
to the actual communion or last supper meal itself. And before engaging in that final meal, Jesus made an announcement. We saw it there in verse 18. It was shocking. He says, one of you is going to betray me. One of you who is eating with me. And Mark presents all the disciples as searching themselves. They all ask Jesus the question, is it I? And he tells them, it'll be one of you, one of the 12, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me, is what Jesus said in verse 20. Now, this might have been just Jesus's way of saying uh, or highlighting how gruesome this betrayal was going to be. It's going to come from a friend, someone that I'm breaking bread with, someone that I'm eating a meal with is going to betray me. But John's gospel gives us further details into this event and tells us that in this moment, Peter motioned to John to privately ask Jesus who it was. John was likely the youngest of all the disciples. You might remember he, in his own gospel, always calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. He really felt that Jesus loved him, and I think part of it was because he was a mere teenager, and he knew that Jesus cared for him in a special way. So John privately asked Jesus who it was, and Jesus said this in John 13. He said, it's he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. John goes on to say that Judas departed after eating that morsel of bread because Satan had entered into him. He'd made his decision final when he took the bread, accepted the bread from Jesus's hand. He most certainly now would be Jesus's betrayer. Now I want you to see the statement that Jesus made about Judas again in verse 21. He said, for the son of man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he'd not been born. Okay, first things first. Sometimes people wonder, did Judas repent and, and, and get saved later on? Did he experience God's grace and mercy? But from this statement from Jesus, it appears that Judas did not later repent and receive God's forgiveness and grace. It would have been better, Jesus said, for this man to never have been born. I can't imagine that statement ever made about anyone who ever ultimately received Christ's forgiveness. I mean, as re regrettable as our pasts might be, nothing goes beyond his grace. And if we receive it, we should be glad that we were born because now we have a future with Christ. But Judas didn't have that future. He was remorseful to the point of self-harm, but he was not forgiven. He did not repent and seek God's grace. But I also want you to notice the way that Jesus blended God's sovereignty with man's responsibility. He knew that he would die just like the scriptures foretold, he said. But he still pronounced a woe upon Judas. Though these events had all been predicted and prophesied by God, Judas was still responsible in Jesus's estimation for his actions. The sovereign plan of God did not cancel out Judas's moral responsibility. You see, this is the truth of scripture. God's sovereign stated goals and plans do not diminish humanity's freedom and responsibility. Both are true and deserve our affirmation. 
But Mark's point seems to be simple. Jesus was increasingly alone as he went to the cross. You might remember David, a man who had a lot of experience with being betrayed by friends and family members. He said in Psalm 41, verse nine, something that I think Jesus could say. Even my close friend, he said, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. That's the emphasis that Mark is making. A friend betrayed Jesus. Someone who ate a meal with him would turn against him. And really, if we think about it, this is the worst kind of hurt. You know, when a husband or wife or friend or spiritual leader in your life wanders from Christ and sins against you, it's a terribly painful experience. And Jesus endured that level of aloneness. This is Mark's emphasis. Part of the reason I'm confident of this is because he actually closes this section by talking about Jesus and his prediction that even all the other disciples would not betray Jesus like Judas did, but deny that they knew Jesus. Jesus was on his way to the cross completely alone. But finally now we get to the meal itself. Let's read of it in verse 22. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. There's a lot here. It's a beautiful passage. Let me start by just explaining here that they were eating the Passover meal. And as they're eating this Passover meal, Jesus at some point veers away and does something out of the ordinary. You see, the normal Passover ceremony would have begun with a blessing over the group. Then they would have all drank from the first cup of wine. Then the youngest child in the family or the youngest person in the group, likely John, would have asked a question. Why is this night different from other nights? Then the host or the father of the group, Jesus in this instance, would start to retell the events of the original Passover in Exodus from the book of Exodus. Now in the recounting of what God did in the original Exodus, all the elements on the table during this Passover meal would have then been explained. Lamb is being eaten because in the original Passover, the blood of the lamb is what saved us as it was applied to the doorpost. Unleavened bread is present because on the night that God delivered us, we were told to leave the land in the middle of the night. We had to leave so fast that we didn't even have time to properly bake our bread. And so we cooked it in its unleavened state. A bowl of salt water on the table indicated the tears that they'd shed in their years of slavery. 
Bitter herbs on the table were there because God had rescued them from their years of bitter living in slavery. And four cups of wine were there because God had made them four promises before the Passover. He had told them that he'd bring them out of Egypt, that he would deliver them from the Egyptians, that he would redeem them with great acts of judgment, and that he would take them to become his people. And after reliving the Passover in this way, they then would drink together from the second cup of wine, and the meal itself would begin. Then, before they drank from the third cup of wine, bread was broken. It's at this point that Jesus veered off in a new direction. After blessing the bread, he broke it, that's normal. Then he gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. Then he gave them the cup. They drank of it and he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant poured out for many. This is a earth shattering moment. There they are ready to celebrate the blood of the Passover lamb, ancient blood an annual reminder of God's redemption of the people of Israel out of Egypt. And then Jesus hijacks it and speaks of his own blood and his own covenant. You see, in this new meal, the bread no longer is to remind them of the speed of their deliverance. No, the bread is now reflective of Jesus's body. And the blood, meant to signify the blood on the doorpost of each Israelite home, that cup, it now signifies Jesus' blood. He's brought a new covenant for his people, and this new meal is meant to commemorate it. And in Jesus' church, we don't have a variety of feasts and festivals and ceremonies like ancient Israel did. I know some of you read the Old Testament and you think, man, I would love to do all those cool things. And some of you read the Old Testament and think, man, I'm so glad I don't have to do any of those things. But Jesus has given to us two sacraments to celebrate, two ceremonies, two outward symbols of internal realities. He's given us baptism and he's given us communion. Christian churches each have to determine how and how often they will celebrate both, but they've got to celebrate them because they're gifts to Christ's people. So today, I wanna talk to you about communion and what we get from communion and the the public taking and eating of the bread and the cup together. My fear is that we would just go through the motions whenever the bread and the cup are served. We've got to recognize that this is a gift that Christ has given to us, a meal that he wants us to partake of, and it accomplishes so much for God's glory. Now, as I said earlier, our custom, at least at this point, is to partake of the Lord's table collectively as a church on the first Sunday of each month. Not that you are prohibited from partaking personally, privately, or in other ministry contexts, like in your life group, but that's how we publicly and together partake of the Lord's table. And so I wanna talk to you about 10 beautiful things that Christ's communion table does for us. First, communion reminds us of the incarnation of God the Son. You know, when you're holding that bread in your hands, whether it be a small wafer or a chunk of bread that you've 
pulled off. You're to remember that Jesus came in bodily form. God became one of us and took on flesh and dwelt among us. No one has a God like our God, a God who became one of his creatures. He knows us because he became us. As Hebrews chapter four says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Second, communion centers us upon the atonement. He became us to die for us. Without him, our only chance before God is the perfect keeping of the law. But the laws that God wrote on tablets of stone and on the conscience of man are always broken. We always break God's law. God is holy, he's sinless, he's perfect, and he cannot abide with sin. He has to judge it. So not only did we fall short of God's glory, we were destined for God's judgment. But God the Son shed his blood in our place after living a perfect life. He atoned for our sin, and communion reminds us of that atonement. This is probably a good place to mention that we should see this meal as a sacrament and not as a sacrifice. Uh, Roman Catholicism has taught that Christ is bodily present in the bread and cup and that each mass is a new sacrifice. But at the original meal, Jesus was in bodily form when he said, this is my body and my blood. Quite obviously, the bread and the cup that Jesus held that day were not his body and his literal blood. As he did at other times, Jesus used imagery to remind us of a deeper truth. But the belief that the bread and the cup are the literal body and blood of Jesus leads to the view that he dies each week in that ceremony or sacrifice. No, his lone sacrifice on the cross was sufficient for all time. And so it's meant to center us upon that great atoning work of Jesus. Third, communion preaches the importance of personal faith. Look at what Jesus said in verse 22. He said, take, this is my body, take. There's a command that's attached to communion. The individual recipient has a decision. Will I take the bread or not? Will I receive Christ? Will I partake of him and his work for me? You see, the bread has to be eaten. The wine has to be drunk, and no one can force you to partake. You have to decide for yourself. This is how faith, the walk of faith, the life of faith, and justification, of course, by faith, works. No one can force you to be born again. No one can force you to be obedient to God and walk by faith, trusting him. You have to personally receive Jesus. It's a personally daily walk by faith. You must, by faith, apply the work of his body and his blood to your life. It's on you. Number four, it communicates the unity of the church. You know, why do we have fellowship with one another? How, how have we together become a spiritual family? You know, it's certainly not our race or our sex, or our education. It's not our political affiliation. It's not our zip code. It's not our income bracket. It's none of those things that unite us. 
These are all lesser markers that should not divide God's people. But as we partake of a common table and eat from the same bread and cup, we should remember our oneness in Christ. It's his blood that unites us. Fifth, communion reminds us that we belong to Jesus. You know, when they had the original Passover meals, it would be the father, more than likely, that stood up in front of his family and told the story of the Exodus and led his family in the partaking of the Passover meal. And this meal should make you feel like you are part of Christ's family, Jesus's family. When he sat and initiated this meal with his disciples, it serves as a reminder that they, and by extension us, are part of his household. We belong because of what he did. He brought us into his family. And communion reminds us that we belong to Jesus. Sixth, communion gives us a chance to glory in this thing called the new covenant. Uh, Luke records Jesus saying in this last supper, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. The new covenant, I think though, is a mystery to many modern believers. I think a lot of people struggle along in their Christian life living an old, co old covenant kind of relationship with God. In the old covenant, there's the constant breaking of the law, constant trying to be obedient to God, followed by failure, feelings of condemnation, and then trying again. But the reality is that there is no condemnation, Romans 8 verse 1 says, for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus' blood introduced a better new covenant. And we need a continual reminder of this covenant of grace. We must know that in this new covenant, one of the things that God promised to do was to live inside of us and to change us from the inside out, not human effort, but our energy combined with the Spirit's energy as he rewrites the motivations of our very heart. He changes us and shapes us from the inside out, and we have to see that we're in this covenant of grace one in which there is always hope for personal growth and sanctification and increased like Christ-likeness because his mercies are new every morning. And communion reminds us of who we are in Christ. We are his everlasting possession and he will not let go. Seventh, communion reminds us Christ is our head. He's the leader of the church. The church is his body. Colossians 1.18 says he's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. He created us by his blood. Without Jesus, we would be and we would have nothing. And on that night, almost 2,000 years ago, our leader instituted this meal. So when we partake, we should be reminded Jesus is our authority. He's our head. What he says goes. He's our shepherd, he's our Lord. All of that should be spoken to us when we partake of communion. But eighth, communion reminds the church of its mission. Jesus told us to make disciples of all nations. And when he instituted this meal, he said in verse 24 that his blood is poured out for many. 
You see, when Jesus shed his blood, it wasn't just for you personally. It was that, and we've talked about how we're to celebrate that. But it was also for the world. John 3, 16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. To hold the bread and the cup is the greatest privilege a human being can have because it signifies that they're part of God's family. But it's one that's afforded to us because at some point, the gospel came to our ears. Somebody was faithful to bring it to us. And as we hold these elements in our hands, we're holding a message, the message that the world needs to hear. Ninth, though, communion creates an opportunity for healthy self-reflection. You can find the teaching on this in Paul's letter to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians. They were a messy church. They had a lot of problems. Some sort of sin had spread throughout their gatherings together. They'd eat these meals together, and there's some kind of sin there. When they ate together, it seems that the rich uh, were elevated above the poor, and, and their appetites ran out of control. And it seems that they'd taken communion and made it part of their meal together. So Paul told them that they should not approach the Lord's table lightly. He said this in 1 Corinthians 11, let a person examine himself then and so eat the bread, eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Examination, self-examination. Now I say this with fear and trembling because I've known people who have taken this way too far, way out of context and have refused to eat the bread or drink the cup because they feel they haven't attained some kind of sinless perfection. But all I'm saying is there is a place for healthy, Holy Spirit-led self-examination when taking communion. Confession of our sins and recommitment to the Lord seems appropriate during this time. So what a gift, healthy self-examination. And finally, 10th, communion stirs our hope for the second coming of Christ. This meal serves as a stimulus for eschatological hope. Jesus said that he wouldn't eat this meal again until it was fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Mark records Jesus saying in verse 25, I will not drink this cup again until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And Paul said this, He said, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So when we partake of this meal, it serves as a reminder to us, Jesus is coming again. He hasn't eaten this meal over the last 2,000 years because he's not going to eat it until he comes in glory in his kingdom. And every time we eat the meal, as we're supposed to do, we're celebrating the fact, preaching the gospel until the day that Jesus does come. So it stirs our hope for the second coming. As one commentary I read said, this is a wellspring in the wilderness, a green spot in the desert, a feast to refresh us on our pilgrimage, and a foreshadowing of that feast above, where many shall come from the east and west and north and south and recline with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. So what an incredible gift we have in this meal. 
And when they had sung a hymn, verse 26, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Just as Jesus had said, he did not drink the final cup of the Passover meal. Remember I told you there were four, they drank three. The third was likely the cup that Jesus used to partake of communion. He neglected the fourth cup after he established that new meal because he said he wouldn't drink wine again until he came into his kingdom. Instead, he jumped straight to the closing songs of the old Passover meal, likely Psalm 115 to 118, and they left the upper room and headed for Gethsemane, which is verse 26, on the Mount of Olives. Jesus had established this new meal, and now he was ready to die because the time had come. But I hope today that what I've been able to teach you and explain to you has helped you in your understanding of the value of the Lord's table. Now, I'm a Protestant, obviously. I'm not a Roman Catholic. And I think that many Protestants have downplayed the significance of the Lord's table, perhaps in part because, well, we're just that. We are Protestants. We protest what had come before and we, we believe that we've rooted ourselves again to the his, historical orthodox Christian faith. But let us not neglect the beauty of the Lord's table. I know I, for one, as a pastor, have contemplated and thought quite often about how to increasingly make this a special experience for God's people because that's exactly what it is. Thank you for listening. If you would like more teachings and information about Calvary Monterey, please visit calvary.com. You can also find books, teachings through the Bible, and articles from our lead pastor at nateholdridge.com. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next week.